Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Thank you for joining us. I've been looking forward to tonight's conversation for a long time and I'm really excited to introduce my guest in this first segment. He is Craig Kletzing, just next to me, the Donald A. and Marie B. Gurnett Chair in the Department of Physics and Astronomy here at the University of Iowa. Uh, thank you for being here with us, Craig. Thanks for inviting me. Glad yeah. to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a real pleasure. Um, many people listening will know that you recently gained a lot of press coverage, and deservedly so, when it was announced that you and your team had won a $115 million contract from NASA to study the connection between the magnetic fields of the Earth and the Sun. And uh, this contract award, I guess, is the largest external funding award that was ever made here at the university. So that's very cool. That's what I'm told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really <laughs> I great. don't have so, the records, so I, no, no. I go with what they tell me. But congratulations for that and for the uh, respect you. you and your colleagues have obviously learned over many, many uh, decades uh, that the UI has been involved in space research. I think all of us in this room know that um, the Van Allen radiation belts were discovered by James Van Allen, who taught here at Iowa and uh, conducted his research here. And that discovery goes back to 1958. But honestly, that's just at the very beginning of what we've been doing here with space, correct? Uh, correct. I, actually, it's really the beginning of space experiment for the world, mm -hmm. frankly. The, you know, After Sputnik was launched, uh, so we say the U.S. was a little surprised that the Russians were that far ahead of us and it got something into orbit. But it didn't measure anything. It essentially went boop, boop. <laughs> um, and so uh, they contacted Van Allen. He had experiments that he'd been flying on rockets. Um, Rockets that went up first on a balloon and then were launched, so they were called raccoons. And mm -hmm. uh, he had hardware that could fly, and so uh, they um, contacted him and they put Explorer 1 together, which was launched uh, two days uh, before I was born. No kidding. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, and then in all these succeeding uh, decades, you, Donald Gurnett Chair is, is obviously named after one of our most well-regarded um, uh, space researchers here at the university, and he's just recently retired a couple of years ago, I guess. Indeed, indeed. Uh, yeah, no, Don just retired this past summer. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the space program at the University of Iowa has, has been steady and gone. It goes all the way back to those, those first um, satellites that were flown. I mean, they were very simple in those days. But I was just looking at this recently, you know, in the, in up to the present date, we have flown, I think, over 80 satellites that we've been involved with mm. and dozens of what we call sounding rockets, which are rockets that go up and come back down. So it's been a very, very steady effort here for many, many years. Mm. And um, just in the past few years, we've hired some fantastic faculty. So we will be continuing in this game for yeah. quite some time to come. Yeah, that's, that's really wonderful. So excuse the elementary nature of this question, but um, when Dr. Van Allen first uh, began his work, was he looking for something specific or was he just trying to gather data so that he could see whether there was something that made sense? Well, as it turns out, I know the answer to this pretty well because um, my PhD advisor at the University of California in San Diego was Carl McElwain, who was one of the students who worked with Van Allen on oh, this. So I've heard oh. stories about this for <laughs> my whole career. Um, and what they were looking for were actually were cosmic rays, and that's what they had been measuring on these raccoons that they were flying. And so they expected to see those. Uh, what was unexpected was they saw that suddenly um, this, uh, the particles they were counting would suddenly stop. Mm. And then it would pick back up again and it would stop. And so the initial thought was, uh-oh, <laughs> our experiment is broken. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, my advisor, Carl, went into the lab and showed that actually what was happening is there were so many particles 
that were hitting uh, their, their instrument, that it would just overwhelmed and shut down. And as soon as it dropped off again, it would start to count again. And so that was the first uh, you know, suggestion that there was something there that nobody had thought about before. Yeah. Um, and then uh, on Explorer 3, they flew a detector that you know, part of it was shielded so it could handle the bigger count rates along with one just like they'd flown on Explorer 1. And they could say, there very definitely is something here. Mm-hmm. And that was led to the discovery of the radiation belts. Yeah. So the first bit was Explorer 1, but Explorer 3 was the confirmation of seeing it mm-hmm. again that uh, we like to have in science. Mm-hmm. Well, so then, can you can you lead us into where you are now with this tracers study and what what you're trying to get at? Uh, well, so you know, there's been lots of different missions over the years. Uh, um, the University of Iowa has been involved with several different directions on these things. I think we've been to all but two of the planets. Mm. Uh, our instrumentation, actually Don Gurnett's uh, instrument on uh, Voyager, is now the furthest man-made object from the sun um, and has actually gone out into interstellar space. Um, we've flown on all, all different kinds of things. And um, so you know, most recently we've uh, been involved with a, a mission back to the Van Allen radiation hmm. belts called the Van Allen probes. Um, it was originally the radiation belt storm probes, but NASA kind of likes them to be up and working before they name them after yeah. somebody. <laughs> so once we were successfully on orbit, uh, that was rechristened. Um, and then we have another mission, the magnetospheric multiscale mission. There's the Juno, which is also studying this, this process and related to our most recent award. Uh, there's the Juno mission, which is out at Jupiter right now. Um, and there's um, uh, the Mars Express mission, which is at Mars. So, you know, we're still quite active and have uh, many uh, missions with, with data coming back. Um, this most recent one, uh, the Tracers mission, is actually a mission that's much closer to the Earth. Uh, Tracer stands for the Tandem Reconnection and Cusp Electrodynamics Reconnaissance Satellites. Mm-hmm. Quite a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's repeat after me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, actually, when these things, we always like to have a good acronym. And so um, I, you know, I usually, when we're, we get a team together and we're putting something together, I say, well, look, let's come up with a good acronym. Whoever wins, you know, I have a nice bottle of red wine sitting at home <laughs> as a reward. Uh, and so Professor Jasper Halicus of our department was the guy who came up with the name. And so uh, he gets full credit and he got a nice bottle too. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, we're going to fly a pair of satellites um, near the Earth, and we can look at a signature that uh, um, people have known about for a very, very long time. Actually, it goes back to the early 90s, and uh, a paper I worked on with a, a, a colleague that uh, who's now in Colorado. Uh, we were both at New Hampshire at the time. And uh, we saw this general signature, and we showed that it, it could be explained. But then people looked at it more carefully and said, you know, there are these little jumps in the signature, and what's going on with that? And... Um, you know, the theorists get involved and the people think about it and say, well, it could be it's something that's turning off in time or it could just be something about the different places that you're flying through. And to this day, we don't know the answer, which mm-hmm. is it. And so uh, we designed this mission to go through with two satellites, one very quickly after the other, and see how it changes. And um, whether it moves or it doesn't move will tell us the difference between these things. And uh, so um, we proposed that to NASA. Uh, They liked it. And um, now we're proceeding forward into what we call implementation. So Mm -hmm. we have to do everything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So so, um, you don't build the entire satellite here on our campus. 
Or no, no, no. We yeah. so on these kind of missions, this is what's called a small explorer mission, mm-hmm. um, and you know you, that is indeed a direct connection back to Explorer One. Mm-hmm. It's a program that's continued at NASA through all these years, um, and uh, oh, about twenty years ago or so, a little bit more, they they made smaller missions. They broke them into two classes: one called smaller small explorers, another called medium class explorers. They are what we call cost cap missions. There, you can only spend so much, and NASA is mm-hmm. pretty stern about that. Uh, and they are PI led, so the PI puts the team together and we have to do everything Mm -hmm. um so we um have to procure the spacecraft all the instruments uh we have to process the data we have to handle getting the data back down to the ground do the science um everything soup to nuts um except the launch nasa will launch this for us and uh so we have partnered with a, a place called millennium space systems out in el segundo a relatively young company that builds small spacecraft um, uh, in a very economic fashion and um, they will build the two spacecraft but uh, we build two of the instruments here at iowa one of the instruments is built at uh, southwest research institute in san antonio another at UC Berkeley, and another at UC Los Angeles. Mm. And then they will all come here. We put all the instruments together, and then we go out back out to California and deliver to the spacecraft, mount everything. And all through this, there's test, test, test mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to make sure everything works. Right, right. And is there any kind of fail-safe or backup to any of these instruments? Once, once you send them off, um, I'm sure there are a few hard-stopping moments when things happen that you didn't expect to happen. Hopefully the machine hasn't. The equipment hasn't stopped functioning, but... Well, this is why we test, (laughs) test, test. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It turns out it's pretty hard to go up there and repair things. Uh, So uh, we do a whole huge amounts of testing. All the instruments are tested individually. Spacecraft subsystems are tested individually. Then it's all put together, and then we test the whole thing as a a unit. And we do, we uh, you know, riding up on a rocket shakes you pretty hard, so we do what we call a vibration test where we shake the heck out of things. Um, mm. It's not a very fun test to watch because you go, oh, my goodness, my mm. instrument. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> What's mm-hmm. it going to do to that? Because uh, mm. it gets shaken pretty hard. Uh, and then after that, we uh, do what we call a thermal vacuum test because space is basically a vacuum. And so one big problem is worrying about are things going to get too hot? You know, you know, on your computer, if it didn't have a fan, you know, mm-hmm. or things might overheat and not work. Well, we don't have a fan in space because we can't blow any air across anything. So what we'll do is put this into a big vacuum chamber and we pump it down and then we take it up in temperature and down in temperature to make sure it can handle all the temperature extremes mm-hmm. it might see. And like I say, we do that on individual systems. We do it on the assembled system. And all this is to make sure that you've really mm-hmm. ironed out all the mm-hmm. issues uh, in what, what's going on with your mm-hmm. spacecraft. And as part of that, we... We do something called, you know, a day or a week in the life. And so we simulate how we're going to operate all mm-hmm. these kinds of things. Um, so there's there's lots and lots of pieces. But again, you know, when NASA gives you $115 million, yeah. they kind of want it to work. Absolutely. I As do that. the taxpayers that are paying for it. <laughs> so we, we do our very best to make sure mm. that things work. So when, so when it launches, uh, when these two uh, satellites are launched, are these satellites? Yes, they yeah. are indeed. Yeah. Um, when those go up, are you at NASA headquarters? Are the team will be... Typically, we like to see the rocket go up if mm-hmm. we can, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then and actually, often in the early part of the operations, we aren't doing a huge amount. We often wait to turn most of the instruments on, so there'll be sort of initial contact, and um, we're, we're going to do something called rideshare, where we will be launched with other satellites 
And so um, we don't know exactly who and what the order will be, but probably we aren't first. They'll first throw off the mm-hmm. main satellite that we will ride with, and then probably we will get get put into orbit then. And you know, so the first things are just making sure that you know the spacecraft is stable and things mm-hmm. are behaving the way they should, and then gradually we turn things on. Mm-hmm. And so for the turn-on part, we usually will head back to Iowa, which is where our science operations center yeah. is, and we'll monitor the instruments because everything has to be done remotely anyway. And mm-hmm. when we're home, we have all the resources that we need to analyze mm-hmm. things and look at things. But the initial turn-on we will probably, um, which will be done through Millennium Space, which is handling us uh, for the, the contact stuff, I'll probably stay there just to make sure we're up and operating, mm-hmm. and then, then we'll all fly back here and spend yeah. a few weeks getting everything turned on. <laughs> And and so then when we just you talk about the equipment, um, these things that you've built are they essentially sort of complicated little computer software? Uh, uh, is it like, computer? Like, 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 I mean, like the, this, the equipment that you've built, the stuff that is going oh, to help you gather the data you need, are these? Well, there's a central computer uh, in what we call our main electronics box, which we design, and, and actually the guy that's doing it is at the University of New Hampshire is also one of our partners. Um, We're mostly building our sensors, and so we have sensors that can measure an electric field, sensors that can measure a magnetic field. Uh, We're going to look at the particles. We like to look at electrons. We look at the ions. Um, We look at uh, waves as well. And so all of those sensors uh, get built and then integrated together into that one computer here, which controls everything. Um, but most of what the instrument teams are building is a, an individual sensor, and then they sort of s- specify what their requirements are for how it has to be communicated with to operate. Right. And so some of them have sort of what I would call very rudimentary computers, mm-hmm. uh, but the main computer is the central one that you know pulls the data, yeah. puts it into some format, gives it to the spacecraft to send to the ground. Hmm. Yeah, so um, how long are you expecting to have to work with the data once you get it? Is this a multi-year process to figure out what all these sensors are sending back to the main computer? Um, Well, mission life is is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Right now we're looking at probably of the order of a year of mission Mm. life. We get lots of data, but typically we also plan for at least another year beyond that uh, with the... to work with the data and uh, properly archive it. Um, being a NASA mission in the current environment, all the data is completely available to the public. Typically, we get a sort of a buffer period of three to six months to make sure that, you know, we want to make sure that it's good, mm-hmm. it's properly stored and things like that. Um, but in my experience, it's good to have the public involved and primarily people in our scientific community because they will find little things that you need to fix mm-hmm. because they're trying to do something with it. And mm-hmm. then they say, wait, this doesn't look quite right. And we try hard, but you, it's easy to miss, you know, fine details. Um, and so we will probably work with that data for at least a, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, but often, if everything is still working, we go back to NASA and say, well, it's up there and it's still working. And wouldn't you like to extend us for another year or two? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. And so that's quite common in these kinds of missions that, uh, um, for instance, our Van Allen Probes mission uh, has been operating for seven years now. It was designed for two. Um, it will mm-hmm. end actually next Monday because ah. we've run out of fuel. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. And that's the way it goes. But, you know, we've been doing good science. All the instruments have been working. And so NASA mm-hmm. says, yeah, you know, that's a relatively small investment to work on the data versus building a whole new set of spacecraft. So Mm -hmm. we hope tracers will go for many years. Wow. So can you help me understand what it is we're trying to learn about the magnetic uh, fields around Earth and around Sun? Well, sort of the big picture goal of all of this is to understand uh, what people often talk about as space weather. 
Um, so, you know, the environment of space, people are told it's a vacuum. People tend to think there's nothing there, and that's not true. There's just not very much. Uh, but it's a really big place. And so when you put a little bit of something in a really, really big place, you can start to have uh, various effects. Um, and so the, the sun sends out a constant stream of what we particles called the solar wind. And um, the Earth has a big magnetic field that acts sort of like as a big buffer for us. And so when those two things interact, energy can get transferred from this solar wind into uh, our local region of space uh, that we call the magnetosphere. And understanding how all that behaves is actually um, pretty important. And so much like terrestrial weather forecasting, we'd love to be able to do accurate forecasting of space weather uh, because we know it, it affects things that humans do on the surface of the planet. Uh, for instance, back in 1989, there was a big uh, coronal mass ejection coming from the sun, a big chunk of matter. And, uh, you know, the... Looking out from the sun, the Earth's a pretty small speck, so most of the time these things don't get very near us. This one pretty much caught us head on and caused a big, uh, what we call geomagnetic storm. And uh, that actually caused um, huge blackouts in Quebec really? because a power station overloaded and um, they basically blew up a substation and so forth, and so people were without power for quite some time. And so being able to predict when something like that is going to happen is actually of great interest. Mm -hmm. And so the way Tracers fits into this is this big question, as I was talking earlier about, are things just spatially varying or are they also varying in time? Um, is something we don't know the answer to. So if we're going to try to build models, and you know, like the big weather models that they run to tell you, you know, a, a storm is coming tomorrow, uh, we need to know the answer to a question mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And so in the big picture, as we, once we get that question answered, and we will do it for a variety of different conditions. So you know, it's sort of like looking and understanding what things will lean to rain tomorrow and what things don't. That Then we can tell the people who do the big theoretical models, well, here's what the observations say. See, if your model isn't doing this, it's not right, and you've got to mm -hmm. fix it. Mm -hmm. And that way we will evolve over you know, many, many uh, years to having a capability where we can start to say, you know, what's coming is going to cause a big problem. And so mm -hmm. we need to, you know, the power stations need to be on alert that something might happen. Um, and it can be even bigger. There was an event back in the 1800s that uh, called the Carrington event that was big enough that um, telegraph wires started sparking. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine with all the electronics that we have today mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that uh, that could be quite disruptive. Yeah. And so there's concern of, you know, can we get to a point where we can predict something mm -hmm. like that so at least we can predict, predict uh, you know, key systems and things sure. like that. Sure. So we, we are a, a small piece of that, but mm -hmm. an important one that lets us know um, how we have to proceed forward with our modeling. I mentioned before we went on the air that I used to work at a radio station, and we would get a couple of times a year notices that there would be sunspot activity at a certain time, and we should expect that transmissions would be interrupted. Now, um, I, I don't know if that sort of thing is the same sort of prediction that you might... Would you expect at some point in the future that... They all go together, actually. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, those were, you know, be on the lookout for, and it might happen. What you'd like to get to is it's, you know... What, what they didn't tell you is there's an 80% or a 20% chance that oh. it was going to happen the next yeah. day. They just said yeah. it might. Yeah. And so we'd like to get more like weather where you could say, you know, there's a 30% chance tomorrow of rain. We'd like mm -hmm. to say, well, there's a 30% chance that, that you're going to see this kind of event. So then you can 
plan in a way that, you know, kind of is a uh, appropriate response. Mm-hmm. And when we can say there's a 100% chance, then you say, hey, I'm going to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and already, even with the fairly primitive forecasting that we have, power companies, particularly in the northern and southern, you know, latitudes, um, as you get further north and further south, are quite, quite interested in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at a meeting uh, a couple of years ago in South Africa, and there was one session all about these big currents that get induced and Mm -hmm. what they can do about solving those kinds of problems. So people are paying attention. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously your your big project now and for the next few years. Mm -hmm. Do you have a head full of other exciting things you want to start to investigate? Well, there's, <laughs> well, yeah, and even the data that we have from some of the existing projects, I have, you know, things that we're working on and models and stuff that we, we would like to uh, do further work with. So there, there's always, unfortunately, more ideas than there is time in the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. So, uh, but yeah, I, for me, you know, I'm getting towards the end of career, so this may be the last really big thing that mm-hmm. I do. Um, <laughs> but I'm also working with, like as I said, with some of our younger faculty who are proposing uh, missions further down the road. Yeah. And so, you know, providing instruments for their missions and things like that as they move towards this PI class of leading the whole thing themselves. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's kind of after this mission where I see myself more as uh, helping to facilitate that we still stay very active into the future. Yeah. Um, you can help me remember the specifics of this, but I'm, I'm sure that you'll know, and some of the audience will know, that a few years ago, um, sounds from space were captured and utilized by a composer, Terry Riley, a contemporary classical mm-hmm. composer. And um, so these these space sounds, this was when Don Garnett was mm-hmm. uh, in the department. And um, Terry Riley composed something called Sun Rings, which was a really beautiful, really interesting performance piece that was premiered here at Hancher. And um, it, the, the sounds from that had been captured from space were integrated into this piece. And it was sort of very, it was beautiful to watch and very interesting. Some of the sounds were shh. Mm-hmm. like that, and some were little pops and beeps and things. And so somebody sitting in the audience like me, I really had no idea how they got these these um, sounds captured and so on. But they created this musical moment for a really inventive creator. And, um, and I read a, a little piece when I was uh, getting ready for today's interview, and um, this was from a review of Sun Rings, and the author said, utilizing space recordings and scraps of poetry, the minimalist Titan and his longtime collaborators grapple with humanity's place in the universe. Is that (laughs) what you're trying to do, grapple with humanity's place in the universe? Well, I think it's certainly something that almost everybody has thought about at some point. Uh, when I'm doing science, I guess I'm more interested just in how stuff works. Yeah. Um, that's kind of uh, <laughs> my place in the universe anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, thinking about things like that. Um, and uh, The Sun Rings was also uh, written for uh, uh, my favorite modern quartet, the Kronos. Um, and the, the, these sounds of space are quite interesting. We've actually made more recordings of these uh, with the Van Allen probes, uh, not all of the whole range of ones that were heard uh, for sun rings. Um, but uh, it turns out that some of the waves that we see in space are in the same frequencies as human hearing. Really? So you don't even really have to um, change anything about them. You just basically take the measurement and turn it into a sound file. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting when we first got these back from Van Allen probes um, that uh, um, people said, oh, these are so clear. And I kind of scratched my head because I've heard these <laughs> things around our department, you know, since mm-hmm. I, I joined. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it dawned on me that Van Allen probes actually um, 
has the most resolution. So we are the first CD quality sounds Ooh. of space. <laughs> <laughs> Not that anybody remembers what a CD is anymore. Uh, but, uh, and so that extra clarity comes mm-hmm. through. Um, and uh, um, so that, it was kind of interesting when people first started mentioning it to me because it, it never occurred to me that that would happen. Um, but there's always been quite a bit of interest in that stuff. And, of course, Don has measured things at, at many of the planets. So you get some of different sounds mm-hmm. depending upon where you are. And some of those mm-hmm. do have to be translated uh, in pitch so that you can, you can put them into the human mm-hmm. range. But the ones right around the Earth, we don't touch other than just to turn them into a sound file. Yeah. And there's quite a variety of different things uh, and about, oh, what's this, about three or four years ago, Dan Moore, who's the percussion professor here, uh, wrote a piece for uh, solo marimba and stereo uh, sounds from the Van Allen probes. Very cool. <laughs> which we did as part of, uh, I forget what, it was a, a, a artistic thing uh, mm-hmm. in the spring that, mm-hmm. that he wrote that for, and that was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, very fun. Well, gosh, I can't thank you enough for coming here to join us tonight and telling us about your research and everything that has come before and all the things that will come in the future. It's really exciting. So, Craig Kletzing, thank you. And I think that's it for this first segment of our program. I hope you'll stay with us for part two, where we'll be discussing the effects of chemotherapy on brain function. Uh, World Campus Programming is available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. Uh, I'm Joan Kerr for UI International Programs. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Thank you for joining us. With a focus tonight on research, we're going to be speaking in this segment with two people investigating the effects of chemotherapy on brain function. I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Sneha Fadke, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine here at the University of Iowa. Thanks for being here, Sneha. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Dr. Kanchna Ramchandran, an associate research scientist in the UI Department of Internal Medicine. And uh, thank you very much, Kanchna, for being here. Thank you for inviting us. You bet. So I'll start with you, Sneha. Uh, Mm -hmm. The common name for the condition that I know we're going to be talking about (laughs) principally tonight that many cancer patients suffer when undergoing chemotherapy is chemo brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you explain what it is and how you're trying to both address it and perhaps uh, relieve those symptoms. Mm -hmm. So chemo brain is sort of the layperson term for what we as um, physicians or investigators refer to as cognitive deficits after chemotherapy. And that's a really broad term. So um, patients will um, say that they feel that they've just lost some ability to multitask, for example, or maybe they don't have the same ability to concentrate or focus or um, jump from one sort of cognitive activity to another. They've lost some um, what we call cognitive flexibility. And so um, those are often symptoms that patients describe. But the actual diagnosis is somewhat elusive because there's no criteria for diagnosing this entity. Um, And that's, I think, the reason for that is really multifactorial. 
um, probably it wasn't until the last five or 10 years that it was even truly recognized as a, a real thing that happens. And I think uh, the resistance to um, maybe funding research in this area or really recognizing it as an entity is that um, there can be underlying conditions that may um, sort of confound this diagnosis. Um, obviously, after a diagnosis of cancer, it's not uncommon that someone may have anxiety disorder, depression, um, sleep disturbance, and those things can also contribute to, to those same symptoms of lack of focus or concentration. And so that's been the challenge, I think, um, as an oncologist, is being able to even provide patients with an accurate diagnosis mm -hmm. of what they have. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so finding that pool of patients that can serve as sort of a, um, I don't know, core group or a, a test group, you have so many variables, it's probably difficult mm -hmm. to, to just focus in on people who may have sort of a, a, a more, what should I say, a more similar experience. And mm -hmm. I, I think you have focused mostly on breast cancer patients. So I'm a breast oncologist. And actually, some of the first reports of chemo brain were from breast cancer patients, um, you know, because I think um, women tend to um, multitask. We do a lot of things at one time, and we're often um, in charge of work responsibilities and home responsibilities, and we're used to being able to do all that. And I think that um, women after chemotherapy just felt like they weren't able to do that as well anymore. And so I think that um, breast cancer patients were really the first ones to sort of advocate for, um, for this, not only um, this term as a diagnosis, but also for research funding. And uh, chemo brain really, I mean, it doesn't... Um, it can affect anyone who has cancer. It can affect uh, patients who get all sorts of different types of chemotherapy. So it's not necessarily one type of chemotherapy or one type of cancer or one type of patient. Um, men can get chemo, yeah, chemo brain, um, so, but the symptoms may be a little bit different, which, again, is why the diagnosis can be a little bit elusive. Um, interestingly, there's even some evidence that patients will start to feel that they have these um, declines in neurocognitive function before they even get chemotherapy. Mm. So whether there's some component of the cancer itself that's causing um, you know, inflammatory sort of chemicals released in the body that's affecting brain function, mm -hmm. uh, these are all questions we don't know the answers to yet. Mm. Yeah. Um, so when a patient has concluded chemotherapy... Would you say that it seems that the symptoms are relieved after six months or a year? Do people sort of return to the way they thought they were before? So um, what's interesting is that I, in my experience at least, patients don't tend to realize that they have any symptoms during chemotherapy. It's not until they sort of get back to normal life and... Um, then they start to do things that they did before chemotherapy, and that's when they sort of recognize that mm. things just aren't quite the same as they mm. were before. The good news is that even though it's a hard thing to diagnose and an even harder thing to treat, most people do improve with time away from chemotherapy. So um, the longer time that you go, usually those symptoms do improve, although um, there are certainly patients who never, um, f never feel they completely recover. Yeah. Well, in a conversation we had prior to the program, you said that uh, chemotherapy can lead to accelerated aging at a cellular level, as well as patient-reported feelings of aging. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? So that's a relatively new field. And just here in the last three to five years, there's been research that's been published looking at certain uh, changes in genes um, that are associated with aging. And um, they found that 
patients who got chemotherapy had those same changes in, in genes that you would expect to only see in older people. Mm. So that's it, it was very preliminary research, so it's certainly not anything that um, has changed um, practice or changed standard of care, but certainly um, I think validates the feelings that a lot of patients have that mm. they just feel older after chemotherapy. Mm. So uh, you had said that the, the process of, of diagnosing this thing we're calling chemo brain is, is really what you're engaged in now. You're trying mm-hmm. to find markers that can be followed or, mm-hmm. or um, um, you know, similar symptoms that you can track over time with people. And mm-hmm. um, are you both involved in setting up a protocol here at Iowa that will mm-hmm. be used by other uh, physicians as well? So it's, right now it's very preliminary research. We're doing some pilot studies like I said, there's no standard treatment option, and the uh, treatments that we have are usually medications indicated for other things like depression or um, even dementia. And so they're not really, uh, the, the research behind them is not robust, and they honestly don't usually work very well. So mm-hmm. we're trying to th- um, find um, new treatment options, and at the same time as we're trying to uh, provide clinicians with a way to definitively diagnose chemo brain um, using. Um, neuropsychological testing, and also um, MRI. Mm -hmm. So we have one protocol that's open uh, right now, and specifically looking at patients who get a certain type of chemotherapy called doxorubicin. And we are testing their neurocognitive function before they get chemotherapy, and then again, after doxorubicin chemotherapy. And then we're also doing MRIs at both of those time points. And then during the time that they're getting chemotherapy, we're going to be looking at, um, we're going to be asking them about symptoms of anxiety, pain, depression, so that we can factor those things in and see how they play into um, subjective feelings of chemo brain. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, so, Kanchna, uh, you're a research scientist and you're working on this same project with Sneha. Um, tell us what you're uh, looking at in your own research. So, um, as we age, our metabolism slows down, perhaps. And so metabolism around energy available for uh, both brain and bodily function, um, as well as um, part of the metabolic changes is that with age, the amount of um, free iron concentrations seem to increase uh, in the brain and the body. And these free iron concentrations uh, disrupt other metabolic processes down the line. Um, And there seems to be some evidence, um, at least with the body, that uh, the chemotherapy agents that uh, Sneha talked about, uh, they seem to actually increase the free ion concentrations in uh, uh, the the body. And so we think it may be increasing in the brain as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, recently, uh, a few years ago, the um, magnetic resonance research um, center at the University of Iowa, we acquired a a 7 Tesla scanner, so it's a high-resolution scanner. And uh, using a particular form of non-invasive imaging, uh, we hope to be able to track increased levels of iron concentration in the brain. Uh, And therefore, we are hoping to catch them at two time points, before and after chemotherapy, and see if those iron concentrations increase and then the extent to which that correlates with um, their uh, cognitive impairments, if they're experiencing any. 
then we know that this could be a biomarker for chemo brain. The other thing that we are hoping to do is um, to look at uh, the degeneration of connections between different parts of the brain, what's known as white matter connectivity. So again, with both the neurotoxicity due to uh, chemotherapy, um, cells connecting different parts of the brain may begin to die. And so we would want to see how that connectivity is affected with the iron concentrations along um, those connectivity lines. Mm -hmm. Um, The third thing that we're able to do again is because uh, this is a high-resolution scanner, we are actually able to um, see the concentrations of um, large molecules in the brain that are involved with energy transmission between different areas of the brain. And we already know some of the locations in the brain that are involved with the higher-order cognitive functions that you know, like planning and decision-making. So if we zoom into particular areas of the brain that are involved with things like multitasking and flexibility, and then we start looking for concentrations of these large molecules that are involved with transmitting information between, the, you know, energy and information between different parts of the brain, then it gives us a good sense of how those concentrations reduce, you know, after chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. This sounds like really painstaking and slow investigative work. The goal, I think, over here is to have different forms of investigation come together. So it's really multimodal imaging that we're trying to get at. Um, And additionally, we're also trying to explore um, to examine what might be the changes in genetic expression, uh, you know, before and after chemotherapy. So the genes that express themselves with aging, uh, with inflammation that may be associated with um, cancer. Um, So we are then able to track to see if there are some changes in genetic expression. (laughs) Well, as as we all know, you know, a cancer diagnosis is obviously going to upset someone. It may cause depression or anxiety, all of these kinds of things. How... how, um, how do researchers break it down so that you can try to separate out these these various potential influences with any individual patient, let alone looking at a larger group and, and trying to find, um, you know, ways to, to sort of really learn something for a population? So I think that's the reason why we um, do some neuropsychological testing, so to speak, that just measures their... Uh, functions on issues like decision-making and planning and all of that. But we also separately uh, try and track their anxiety and depression and lifestyle changes and changes in sleep, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. over a period of time that, we, that they are enrolled in the study so that um, we have measurements of all these variables that we can then control mm-hmm. for while doing our um, analysis. Mm-hmm. And then presumably with uh, the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center where so many different teams are working on so many different issues and problems, you interweave with other, other doctors and other research teams and perhaps will find a way to, to relieve this issue for individual people or it will help inform which um, chemotherapy drugs are, uh, appear to be the most 
problematic? Uh, is Are you looking at individual drugs in this portion of the study? Well, so um, for this study, we're mainly looking at this um, chemotherapy called doxorubicin, which in breast cancer is very commonly used. Um, but if you look at the literature on chemo brain, um, it's been reported that al- almost any of the chemotherapies can mm-hmm. result in patients feeling like they have some um, uh, neurocognitive decline. So it's likely that there may be more than one mechanism um, by which chemotherapy causes these problems. Um, and that's what makes this um, somewhat more difficult um, in that there may not be one way to prevent this or one way to treat this. We may have to use a multimodal um, assessment to diagnose it and to treat it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the goal is really, for this project, is really to um, uh, see if this, uh, these tests that we're doing with the MRI and the neuropsychological testing will provide some sort of framework that we can then use um, and maybe even um, spread you know, through our research and dissemination to other physicians that can mm-hmm. use this as a way to try to distinguish between um, things like anxiety and depression versus chemo brain. Right, right. And so are the, the folks you're studying, are they all people here coming to this particular university for... For um, help with their illness, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. We um, are trying to work with the physicians and the clinics, the mm-hmm. best breast cancer clinics and the breast surgery clinics mm-hmm. to be able to recruit patients mm-hmm. so that we uh, have a fairly um, really good profile of what chemotherapy drugs they are on as well as um, um, uh, this is what their genetic profiles are as well in so that we can have some tight controls mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the study. Yeah. Well, and you had said earlier that it could be really any kind of cancer, and it seems that just about any kind of drug um, could have this effect on people. Um, for a long time, one heard that um, uh, funding for research into cancers that are more prevalent with women um, lagged behind. But I think breast cancer is one of those areas where there has been more funding available for research in the last decade or two decades. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make this a little bit easier in, in terms of, uh, you know, funding your research? Um, I think so in some ways. I mean, um, like you said and like I said um, earlier, this is not something that's specific to any one type of person or any one type of cancer. Um, but because we're specifically looking at it in breast cancer, there are certainly a lot of funding opportunities available. Um, you know, one thing I think that is more specific to breast cancer is that fortunately, you know, because of a lot of the research funding um, that has been provided over really the last three or four decades at this point, um, the outcomes from breast cancer are largely very good. You know, most women that get breast cancer don't die of breast cancer. They actually live a normal lifespan. And so um, I think we got to a point where now we, we do a pretty good job um, for the most part at treating breast cancer. You know, we're not perfect, but we've, we've definitely improved. But now we really need to make sure that, you know, we're not just increasing years of life, but we're making sure those are good quality years of life. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're not really doing our job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I imagine, you know, you've mentioned aging a couple of times, but there are other things that happen, particularly to women and women who may have breast cancer. You know, you go through that change of life period, which has its own set of reported symptoms and its own... Um, all of these things kind of complicate finding one answer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Definitely. I mean, I certainly um, see women um, around, you know, the age of, of menopause and uh, regardless of whether they took chemotherapy or not, they feel that their neurocognitive function declines or changes in some mm-hmm. way. Maybe they, they feel they are a more, little bit more scatterbrained or something like that. So there are, there are many things that can confound this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. What are you hoping will come out of your next few years of research, uh, Kanjna? Um, we're hoping that we, that our, our um, small sample of pilot studies uh, will give us a couple of signals uh, that will further our, um, you know, that will further uh, and help us refine our research designs to actually identify those biomarkers. And if we find some good effects in the small sample, then we hope to be able to then go out and uh, broaden our study and uh, collect uh, data on several more patients Mm -hmm. um, so that we uh, can have a really solid protocol Mm -hmm. with good research controls that we can then try and um, unearth some biomarkers. Mm -hmm. Um, But not to put the um, cart before the horse, Uh, even without a diagnosis, we now have uh, FDA-approved um, uh, treatments for um, um, treatment res- resistant depression uh, by um, non invasive brain stimulation. And so that's one of the grants that, uh, pilot grants that was funded by the Holden um, Comprehensive Cancer Research Center, by which um, we're hoping again to stimulate some of those areas uh, that we know are involved with those cognitive symptoms that patients com- uh, complain of. Mm-hmm. And so we're hoping that um, that by stimulating those areas, really just sending a magnetic pulse from mm-hmm. the top of the head down to those areas, just beneath the surface, uh, if, if uh, patients can experience some relief from these cognitive symptoms, then that again gives us a signal that we're onto something um, that will again help us expand our study so while the Fraternal Order of Eagles um, funded our initial um, uh, imaging uh, grants, um, our imaging program, uh, the SCC has um, uh, enabled us to try this particular clinical trial of stimulation, brain stimulation. And a clinical trial, is there a predetermined length for a clinical trial? Um, are they usually a couple of years running before you feel you have enough so it really, information? It, yeah, it really depends on the trial. It depends on um, how fast we're able to accrue patients, and it depends on um, how long the um, the protocol is, whether it's a diagnostic or a treatment protocol. Um, because this is a pilot study and we have a relatively small number of patients that we're trying to accrue, you know, we're hopeful that we would be able to um, have some results relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but clinical trials... Um, can definitely, you're in it for the long haul. Yeah. It's yeah. not a short process. Yeah, I guess that's true. Well, boy, I want to say thank you so much uh, to Kanchna Ramchandran and to Sneha Pratke, uh, Fadke for um, joining us this afternoon. And, and boy, what good work you're doing. And it's so, so important. And all of us who've been, um, you know, touched in some way personally or with friends and family with cancer, we're just all hoping that you, you can find... Uh, Uh, the best possible results. So thank you for being here. And thank you for joining us for this portion of World Canvas. I'm Joan Kerr, and we'll be back with the third part in just a moment. 
Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Thank you for joining us. In this part of the program, we'll be focusing on a joint University of Iowa-Iowa State University research project to provide weather and soil intelligence to Iowa's farmers. Joining me for the conversation are Marty Schultz, Vice President for Research at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Marty. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And next to Marty is Jun Wang, professor in the Department of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering here at the University of Iowa. Thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And at the far end, we're joined by Brian Hornbuckle, professor in the Department of Agronomy at Iowa State University. Thank you for coming. Thank you for making the drive over. Welcome. Happy to be here. Great. Well, Marty, I wanted to go to you first. You're the vice president for research here at our university, and you've come here in in the last, what, year, year and a half? Three months. Three, Three months. months. <laughs> Three months. I thought it was more recent or further back than that. But in any case, could you tell us a little bit about your background before you came here? Sure, sure. Um, um, I'm a Midwesterner, born and raised in Nebraska. Hmm. Um, uh, then uh, went to California, and to the University of California, Berkeley, and then to Stanford as training, and then spent the last 26 years at Texas A&M University mm-hmm. um, as a professor and, and uh, an administrator of sorts. Mm-hmm. Been here for three months, <laughs> three as I months. just said. How yep. about that? <laughs> so um, for those of us who don't sort of live in the academic world, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a Research One University? Yeah, so... so I think a, a research one university is 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 the type of university that that combines uh, not only of course excellent educational opportunities and, and teaching of of the wonderful students that we have here and and teaching them to to become proficient in their disciplines and their majors but it's really the the environment and the opportunity for faculty such as the two sitting next to us here um, uh, to come in and 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 have the environment to do their research, their scholarship, their creative activities, um, in addition to teaching. And, and it's these experiences and this research and scholarship that I think really distinguishes uh, R1 or research university from, from most and that the, the faculty uh, do their own scholarship, make discoveries, create things, um, and at the same time they can um, um, take those uh, ideas, inventions, and then get them immediately into the classroom. So there's this very direct connection mm-hmm. between what they do in the laboratory or the studio and what they can convey to their students. Mm-hmm. Well, we've already had the opportunity to hear from two different groups of mm-hmm. very innovative and, and exciting um, researchers, and we're going to be hearing from the colleagues sitting just next to you here in a moment. From your point of view, what are some of the highlights of the University of Iowa's research profile that, you're, that you think we should be most proud of? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, today or this evening's program really sort of highlights a number of very different things. We have some very, very large projects uh, like the the first session with the Tracers project from NASA, the single largest um, grant that the mm-hmm. university's ever received, um, and that's a very involved, very large project that has a very defined mission. Right. Um, to to things like the last project, where where it's a sort of curiosity based um, um, project. There's a problem that needs to be solved, and and the solution and the path to the solution is not clear but you have to employ all the tools that you can. So at the university, and that's the great thing about a university, is there's everything to do. We could have, you could, we could have 20 hours of talks like this and mm-hmm. not even touch upon all the different mm-hmm. research and creative activities that are done here. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so as the UI's VP mm -hmm. for research, you and your colleague in a similar position at Iowa State University right. uh, have funded a joint research collaboration on Iowa's bioscience priorities. That's right. I don't know if everybody knows what bioscience priorities are, but maybe you can give us sort of an overview, and then we'll focus in on what June and Brian Sure, on. sure. Yeah, so the, this program started, um, I think, in 2017, um, endorsed by, by Governor um, Reynolds, um, and, and she put together a, a report or the, commissioned a report that sort of showed what, what Iowa could, could work on and sort of an economic development sort of thing and, and if we could have some research behind it. And so the the topics that were chosen, which are very broad topics, are you know vaccines, immunotherapies, mm -hmm. uh, precision and digital agriculture, which is what we'll hear about some tonight, medical devices, and bio-based chemicals. So these are things that Iowa has decided uh, has defined as some sort of targets for the state to work on. Mm -hmm. And as two as the two uh, research intensive uh, universities in the state, the the two VPRs then got together and said, well, you know, what we need to do is figure out how to fund some projects in this area. We call them seed grants um, to try to bring together some people to really start um, germinating ideas and seeing if they can work together um, and bring different expertise together from different fields to try to solve or work on some of these problems. Right, right. Which takes us to our That's other right. two guests, uh, Jun Wang and Brian Hornbuckle. And Jun, I'll go to you first because you are the lead PI in a project focused on precision and digital agriculture. Um, lead us into this. Help us understand what you're trying to do. Yeah, so uh, basically the, the, the kind of a big picture is that the, the world population has been uh, increasing in the past and will be continue in the coming couple of decades. So it has been estimated that the world population will grow exponentially, uh, you know, by a, will be doubled basically by 2050. But if you look in the past, our humankind technology to grow our crops and that the, the crop yield efficiency per, per acre, per, for example, that, that, that increasing has been keep increasing because of our technology, but that increasing trend is very linear. It's never uh, exponential. So that you can now can see that you got an exponential curve going up quickly in, in 30 years, but on the other hand, you got a, a slowly increased trend of the crop yield efficiency. So there will be a, a gap to meet the demand of the food because our unless we have doing more to harvest, uh, to invest in agriculture, to make our crop yield efficiency uh, increase, uh, you know, uh, dramatically to catch up with the pace of the world population increase. So that's where the agriculture concept coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so precision forecasts and all of that. Uh, the idea behind this is that if through the tools that, that you guys are going to be working on um, and the various collaborative methods, it would be possible to give farmers and people who produce food better information on what's happening around them in, in climate and weather and so on so that they have a better sense of when they should plant. Or at... yeah, yeah, so the, well, I, I grew up in China in a, in, in a farm, so, so I kind of, from my early childhood, I know the, how the weather matters. Mm -hmm. And so in the Middle West here, we have 
drought, for example, severe drought in 2012. I don't know how many of you in the room actually was here in 2012, but you know that the headlines is everywhere the 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 crops were dead, okay? But on the other hand, sometimes we also have wet, very wet year, like this year is very wet. Yeah. So the, the weathers and the, and, and the, the climate change you, you affects the, the crop year a lot. So our idea here is to try to say, well, you, we only have that many of the pieces of land. How can we um, group our uh, crops on, on a definite amount of the land uh, more efficiently? by not using the one-size-fits-all approach, meaning that, oh, we do the fertilization all the time, uh, give the same amount of fertilization um, for all the crops, because there are places, there are pockets where the crops maybe need more, where there are the places where the crops maybe need, may need less. Mm-hmm. So we try to bring up the 21st century technology to, to the farmers. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a very big vision, per se, but, but, but I think uh, that technology is is, is getting to the point where we have to think about, and, 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 and I think with, with the time to come, we can, we can actually increase the crop yield very, very, very dramatically in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so Brian, you're a professor of agronomy, and I, I suspect that that means that you know a lot about and think a lot about crop yield and how we can best utilize our, our lands and resources and fertilizers and all, all these other things. Um, how are you involved in this project, or what interested you in, in this particular grant? Well, uh, yeah, I'm a professor of agronomy, and I, I, it's correct, I think a lot about this still, but <laughs> I don't know as much as I want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, my background is, in, is, is, is an electrical engineer. Oh. Um, when I was in high school, I really liked math and science, and so I went off the deep end and did electrical engineering, uh, but I also uh, like to learn about the environment. I spent a, a summer uh, on an international park, and so I wanted to connect the two things. Um, and I taught high school for a little bit, and then I wanted to go to graduate school. And when I went to graduate school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I met uh, somebody at a place I was interviewing, and I told them, well, I like electrical engineering, especially electromagnetics, studying electricity and magnetism. But I like the environment, but I'm not sure how those things go together. And he goes, have you ever heard of remote sensing? And I said, what's that? And he says, it's using electromagnetics to study the environment. And basically the best way to explain it is using satellites to study the Earth. So these satellites are looking down at Earth, and they're measuring things that are coming from the Earth, and one of those things coming from the Earth is radiation, electromagnetic radiation, and it turns out this radiation changes depending on what's happening on our surface, and some types of remote sensing, like the remote sensing that, that I do, tells us about where liquid water is on Earth's surface, and especially water in soil and in crops, and there's the connection to agronomy. So I started thinking about this in graduate school from a technical point of view. Um, got, fortunately, got hired by a department of agronomy and uh, ever since have been learning a lot more about that. And I'm a native Iowan, so I have a, a, a strong connection to what's going on here. Um, so that's why I'm interested, mainly because I want to see Iowa uh, use its natural resources in the best way that it, it can. We have the world's best soil. We have a great climate. Um, that climate is going to change some, and we need to understand what we need to do to adapt. And so that's why this kind of a project is really important. We've got to make the best decisions we can, and that's really what science is about, making decisions based on evidence. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, so the team is actually larger than you two. You have a number of other uh, collaborators at both institutions, I think. What is the, the mix of specialties within that group? Okay, well, as, as Marty just pointed out, we are a very big uh, university, and so, so same is the our state. So uh, in, the, in the university, our, we have uh, uh, professors from the civil and environmental engineering mm-hmm. who are, are in, look at the weather from the kind of a flooding point of view, mm-hmm. or a, a professor, uh, uh, we have professor also from the geography that on the team that uh, they do UAVs to try to map in the soil moisture and the crop health, uh, you know, by flying UAVs. So you can imagine 10 years from now, farmer, farmers may shoot up the flying maybe five UAVs to survey their farmland to see where we need to add a fertilizer. Is, is a UAV like a drone? Yeah, like a okay. drone, yeah. Okay. Yeah, on, mm-hmm. I'm in, uh, um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, are, we have that, and we also have, uh, people from the uh, uh, geography, that Department of Geography and the Sustainability, look at the, you know, from an environmental protection point of view, mm-hmm. you know, if sometimes we add more fertilizer, it's not necessarily good. So how do we engage with the community, with the farmers, especially we have a pretty aged population in the rural area. And finally, we also have researchers from, uh, from the uh, IHR who mm-hmm. actually try to derive the, you know, using radar to derive the precipitation because we want to estimate how much rain we have today. We also have folks actually in the room from my team that mm-hmm. uh, postdocs and the students that involved in this project and they, they actually uh, do, do you know, all the hard work here so uh, from different <laughs> perspectives. So, so that's mm-hmm. a kind of a, a nice mixture from the mm-hmm. uh, University of Iowa side. So. Mm-hmm. And I would say there's three main things happening at least with this project. Um, Number one is my research on using satellites to tell us about water and soil and, and, and vegetation. Uh, another faculty member is developing crop models that we can better understand um, how they use water and how they uh, use sunlight to produce what we want them to produce and how we can better understand how that's happening. And then a third piece is that at Iowa State, we have what's called the Iowa Environmental Mesonet. Trivia question, it's the busiest website at Iowa State University uh, because it archives data from all over the place, whether data from every, uh, from everywhere. And um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a treasure trove of information that we hope to use to inform what we're doing, basically. And some of the information is coming from our network of sensors that we have in the state. And June didn't also mention that uh, University of Iowa, IHR, also has a... a uh, some great networks of sensors that have been deployed throughout the landscape they're telling us about important things. So uh, basically the idea is to get as much as we can out of that information. Yeah. And you mentioned also the community relationship or the <laughs> relationship perhaps with farmers who could make good use of the information that you have. What kind of outreach is there into the state? Or will there be perhaps once you get further along with your project? So, yeah. So my team uh, basically tried to do the uh, uh, improve the weather forecast mm-hmm. by using all the uh, observation data available. It's, the weather forecast may be too many. It's kind of a mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but too many is kind of is like or never accurate. But it's <laughs> neither of those, okay? <laughs> so it's based on the science and the equations and the such. But but in order to predict accurately what, what's going to happen tomorrow, we need to know what we have today. Yeah. 
if you see, oh, from satellite images, you see, oh, there is a cold front come in, move to the state. Well, your forecast will be much accurate to know the tomorrow the temperature will be colder. So we are trying to use satellite observations from, from different uh, venues. We also try to use the radar data from different venues. But, but more importantly, we are also um, develop a smart and low-cost sensor. This is actually funded by the USDA for a $1.6 million grant for the next four years. So those sensors uh, measure the temperature, red humidity, and the pressure uh, uh, all combined in a very, very small box. And you can put it in your backyard, and you can easily set up and then link the, uh, that sensor to your room, uh, home, uh, home Wi-Fi. And then that sensor will seamlessly transmit the data to Amazon Cloud and then get to our uh, server right here. So that's, that, that sensor was actually, uh, is actually designed and, and by the Proto Studio here, oh, <laughs> in the same really? building okay. here. Right. Wow. And the, the, the case was built in one of the small towns near the Omaha, actually yeah. part of the Iowa. So everything is built in Iowa for that yeah. smart, smart yeah. sensor. I can show you that. Yeah. And so we have these sensors and the data, and all together we try to put the best observation data available. Then we try to assimilate, we call it assimilation. We use this observation data, and then based upon the physical equations, we try to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So we have been building apps, and the basically deliver this information to the farmers in their mm-hmm. fingerprint. They just click on it. What, mm-hmm. what farmland they're interested in, they click on them, and you can look at the next 70-hour forecast in the rainfall and such. So that's a way to engage through the kind of the small, uh, through the apps, also through the um, uh, low-cost sensors. In that way, they can look at, oh, in here, your forecast is always like two degrees lower uh, compared to what I'm seeing in my backyard. So that's kind of things we want to know. In that way, we know where our forecast is not accurate, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So in that way, we get that feedback, and then we can correct our forecast next time. So now all the apps you use, you can complain about their forecast, mm-hmm. but there is no way they know your complaints, okay? <laughs> we have the apps allow you to enter your information there and things like that. So there is one of the things we try to engage. And certainly, we are... We are uh, you know, Brian can probably mm-hmm. can help us talk about more about how the extension goes because yeah, uh, yeah. yeah because yeah. the extension service yeah yeah. So Iowa State's the land grant university, and so we have three missions to do research, teaching, and extension, which means uh, taking the information we develop out to the public, making it available to everybody, all citizens of the state of Iowa. When we have extension meetings, uh, farmers are always asking about the weather. It's probably the first thing on their mind. Sure. Um, there's a lot of work been done on uh, what kinds of things we could uh, provide that would help them make better decisions in terms of how they manage their land. Uh, so part of the grant, uh, part of the work that we should do with this initial seed grant is make sure we are aware of those things and ask more questions so that we can keep going further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when there are sort of major events, you mentioned drought a few years ago, a very wet year like this year, a few years ago, we had terrible floods. When Would one hope that this sort of um, process that you're developing would, we can't avoid having these things, but maybe we would have a better sense of when they're, they're going to be really um, disastrous for our state? Or are we really looking at day-to-day weather prediction rather than massive events like... Uh, you know, a hundred-year flood. 
Yeah, I think both are needed. Uh-huh. Uh, we need forecasts at what we call different spatial scales, which means um, my field or part of my field to my county, to my state, to my uh, continent. We need forecasts at different time scales, which would be tomorrow, mm-hmm. a week, two weeks from now, next season, mm-hmm. 10 years from now. Um, some ways that's the difference between weather and climate. Weather, you know, climate is what you expect. Cl- weather is what you get, mm-hmm. right? So um, right now we think that weather forecasting might be limited to about two weeks. Um, but uh, with the same kind of models, if we, we don't need to know the exact details of what happened, but we need to know what the average conditions are like in the future, and so we, and we can do that. And all that information can be informative for farmers. They've got to be thinking about in the spring, when is the window that I can plant my crop and avoid soil compaction if the soil is too wet? Um, the spring, that window was very small for lots of people, and some crops didn't get planted. Mm-hmm. Um, in the fall, when can I harvest? Same kind of deal. How long can I leave my crops out in the field? So short-term forecasts are important for those kinds of things. But if you're thinking about, well, maybe I'm going to start using cover crops on my field, uh, what can I expect in the next 5 to 10 years? Mm -hmm. That's also an important thing to know. So we've got work cut out for us. All scales of time and space are important to know about if we're going to best manage our natural resources here in the state. Mm Yes. Yeah, I want to share just a kind of a, so we certainly definitely were focused on the day-to-day forecast. But also now even the seasonal forecast, two weeks, uh, uh, I mean, that you know, three or four weeks out of, of, of it, it gives you average mm-hmm. kind of the prediction of it's going to wait or not. That is actually also getting a little bit accurate. I share with you the stories that, like my, my lawns, this summer actually had a several pockets that grass were dead. But when I look at the forecast, look at the in the fall, I see we're twenty percent above the average in terms of rainfall. So I just plant, I just plant right away. Uh, you know, when the data like in the two weeks ago, I I, I brought seed and I planted them. Mm-hmm. Now they grew happily. My my neighbors <laughs> were so amazed by that. How do you how do you know you don't need to uh, because because you did day to day you go there to. If it's very dry, you have to. If you plant the seed, you have to do the wet, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wetting all the time, right? Right. So spring all the time. But now you don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? I say, well, let's just look at your, uh, you, you know, the seasonal uh, mm-hmm. f- forecast. So yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> wow. Well, and of course, there there has been discussion about the difference between what climate is and what weather is. And you said some uh, minutes ago. Our, uh, as tr- is true around the world, our climate is going to change. Yeah. Um, w- do we expect here in Iowa to have to have warmer temperatures? To have uh, it, it, do we know anything yet about what we would expect in the next five years or ten years in terms of uh, planting season and so on? Yeah, um, we're expecting wetter springs, which is not a good thing for planting. We need that recharge of water in the spring to get the soil. Um, to where it needs to be to support crops during the summer. But um, that's a problem when we get too much, and we're expecting that to continue. (laughs) 
we were expecting uh, drier falls, but that's not been true the last two falls for sure. Uh, as a cross-country fan, um, <laughs> we've had a lot of meets that have been canceled because it's been too wet. But, you know, really the big problem is getting crops out of the field. That's really what's um, the issue there. So we're not quite sure what's going on, if that's a trend or mm -hmm. something that's just kind of a blip on the radar. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, things will change. Um, it will get hotter. Uh, I don't know if you saw the recent climate statement that came out from University of Iowa State and Drake, um, signed by lots of scientists in the state, talking about how we're going to go from less than a month of 90-degree temperatures to basically two months or more of 90-degree temperatures during the summer. Mm -hmm. That's not good for the types of crops that we plant right now. So, um, and it's going, it's, it's basically going to happen. And so we need to think about adapting now, uh, but also doing things to prevent worse things from happening, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what, what a wonderful conversation and really great information from all of you, Brian Hornbuckle and Jun Wang and Marty Schultz. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Really appreciate it. And uh, to the audience, uh, I hope that you can join us for the next World Campus on November 21st uh, at a new time and place for this next program. It'll be at 7 p.m. at the University of Iowa Voxman Music Building. And we'll have an intimate conversation with acclaimed opera singer and philanthropist Simon Estes. Uh, he'll be the winner of the UI's International Impact Award, um, and we'll talk about his life in music and his role in breaking the color barrier in the world of opera. So I hope you can join us for that event. World Canvas programming is available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. I'm Joan Kerr for UI International Programs. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night. Thank you.